Welcome. You are now listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. Bienvenidos a todos tuning into the second episode of the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smizer de Leon, and I am happy you joined us today wherever and whenever you are listening to this. We have started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. On our second episode, I had a conversation with Oscar Lopez, a Puerto Rican activist who in the 1970s was considered one of the most dangerous revolutionaries in the United States by the FBI. We just happened to cross paths at Fiesta Boricua and he accepted the invitation to be on. So I did some research and I found that most people ask him about his time in the FALN or his political views. We touch on that a bit, but we ended up taking a deeper dive into what life was like for him during the 35 years he spent in prison. We talk about working behind bars, losing family, and even the toll solitary confinement can have on a person. Oh, and one last thing. This episode was recorded during Fiesta Boricua weekend, and the Puerto Rican Cultural Center studios were full of life and quite a bit of noise, so you might hear some stuff in the background. Oscar, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing fine. You know, I'm alive and kicking. Uh, right on, right on. So for those of our listeners that are not familiar with you, can you introduce yourself for us? Well, I can introduce myself in a very simple way. I, I am Puerto Rican who chose to serve Puerto Rico uh, in its struggle for independence. Our, our mission has been for the last 50 years a mission of uh, decolonizing Puerto Rico, making Puerto Rico an independence of a nation with its own with its own power with its own government, with its own uh, way of uh, developing an economic system, uh, making sure that the interests of the Puerto Rican people come first. What is, what is the moment in your life where you thought, okay, now I am going to advocate for Puerto Rico? Like, what was the what was that one moment where the just switch turned on? Well, uh, we, we have to go into my my experiences in Vietnam and coming home from Vietnam, and I, I think that if, if, had I had I not been exposed to the Vietnam War, I think that I would have. Uh, not uh, participate at all in in the struggle for Puerto Rico's independence. I think that my awakening my awakening comes about uh, being in Vietnam, looking at the Vietnamese people and their struggle, the lies that the United States government had told us in order to justify the war. Because when I got drafted. I was told that the United States government went into uh, Vietnam to bring freedom and democracy to the Vietnamese people. The same thing that he had told Puerto Ricans in 
1898, when, when Nelson Miles, the General Nelson Miles, the leader of the occupation and invasion of Puerto Rico, said to the Puerto Rican people that uh, he was there, that the United States government was there to bring democracy and freedom and the American way of life. To, to Puerto Rico. And by the way, I want to make this point clear. Two years before that, in 1896, it is Nelson Miles negotiating with the last Native American who was fighting, who was still fighting, Geronimo. And he told Geronimo, see that land and see that space, that's going to be for you and that is going to be yours. But what we are trying to do is bring to you the American way of life, freedom, and democracy. And the next next photo of Geronimo is on a train where he's going to prison. And so wow. it, is, it is interesting to see how one thing leads to another mm-hmm. because there is a link between what the United States did to the Native Americans as a government and what is what it did and has been doing to Puerto Rico since 1898. Yeah. And, and this question of what is the American way, whose America is that, and what culture is that that's being brought to a culture that already exists? It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing to, to look at the United States government, its history. One of the things I emphasize to a lot of young Puerto Ricans is this, that we should learn something from the history of the United States from the moment the pilgrims got here mm-hmm. to the moment that it became the 13 colonies become the United States. Because it is the mentality of those who came versus the mentality of those who are here. The mentality of those who are here, the native, the, especially the Iroquois nation, they were in harmony with nature. They were in harmony with themselves. Nobody owned the land. Nobody owned anything except that it was there for their use and to be protected. They did not, they did not, they were not about destroying mm-hmm. nature. Those who came, those who came from Europe had a different mentality. Their thing was to take over the land, dealing with Puerto Rico's uh, condition dealing with uh, what the United States government says and what the United States government does. There's always a difference. There's a dichotomy between what it says and what it does. We can see how bad, how terrible of a situation we're in and why the level of poverty in Puerto Rico increased so much between 1898 and, and, and 1920. By, by 1920, our level of poverty was so intense, so great, that even even Americans spoke against against the treatment of Puerto Rico. Going back a little bit, a few decades, you're seeing a lot of this, these structural issues in this relationship. So you you are in the FALN. In 1981, you're sentenced to 55 years, which a lot of people at the time thought was pretty egregious. Ultimately, you ended up being in prison for 35 years until I was not released until May. 2017. I was 12 days short of being in prison for 36 years. Wow. Yes. So can you tell us a bit more? What was that time in prison like in those 35 years? Uh, well, the, the first the first thing that 
uh, a person realizes in prison is that he has no rights, mm-hmm. and the the there there is nothing uh, worse for a human being to be stripped of everything, uh, any any right. The only the only the only thing that is guaranteed to a prisoner is supposedly three meals and a bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bed could be anything. And, and the three meals could be anything. There's no, no guarantee that you will have nutritional meals, and there is no guarantee that you're going to be sleeping on a bed. Mm. So uh, they could make a cement slab and put you on top of that cement slab, and that will be your bed. That's your bed, okay. Wow. So if, if, we, if we look at, at the prison system, the, the prison system in this country is to punish, not to rehabilitate. The prison system in the United States is to dehumanize, not to humanize us more, to make us better uh, citizens, better human beings. No, it's not for that purpose. Uh, I think that the, uh, the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution made it abundantly clear what prisons were created for. And that was not to humanize, it was not, but it was to continue the exploitation because slavery, yes, if you were a slave and you were not in prison, uh, you, you could get some freedom. But if you're in prison, you will be a slave. And we can look at the pattern that was established with that, with that practice. Prisoners were supposed to work, they will be hired out, they will be rented out. And, and to this day, you know, we, we don't look at it from that angle, but to this day, I think that prisoners are still being used, being abused, yeah. and, and exploited. Absolutely, especially with use of private, privately owned prisons. So we have this system where we can get free labor, we can strip you of the right to vote, and we can keep you away from any family that you have, any culture that you have, any support system that you have. So, so you're you're in this for 35 years. You were you asked to to for free labor while in time in prison, or were you kind of um, put in like a secluded space? The first five years that I uh, was in prison, I. I worked. They they definitely make you work. It's not it's not optional. You they assign you to a job and you're supposed to do the job. Uh, but I I want to make a, a point here that that is what what they by 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 creating the prison system they've created. You know, the human being is made transform into a commodity. We are being commodified. So. Uh, whatever, whatever prison we go into, we're not we're not humans. You're definitely definitely not human. We are just another commodity that they can use. And and you know, when when I arrived in Leavenworth, uh, I was assigned to the paint shop. And every day at seven thirty in the morning, the guard would be waiting for me with a. Uh, a little thing that paint will be on, the canvas will be on, so you know paint will be when I go on the floor, the brushes and whatever else, uh, whatever instruments we're going, I was going to use, will be there, and I will be sent to any place in the institution 
to make sure that I'll be painting. Mm-hmm. And I would, yeah, I would start at 7.30, get a break for lunch, come back, and start painting again. I, that sounds like a lot of repetition. Yeah, but imagine, imagine, okay, if somebody would burn a cell, yeah. So I, I would have to go and paint a burnt cell. There would be uh, less, you know, there, somebody would burn a cell, and you know, I'll be signed to 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 go and paint that cell. Now, you know, you you cannot paint your know, over burnt stuff. So you have to clean it. You have to, and you know, by the end of the day, you probably had done half of the cell. You know, just just. I was always by myself. There will be no one saying to, with me, and six months, six months doing the job. One day, there was no painting to be done. He didn't have a cart waiting for me. He didn't have the paints or anything. He says, "Lopez, you're not going to work today." So, ten o'clock in the morning, I'm reading a book. He calls me to the office. He had a piece of a bar, a piece of metal, with a leather strap, and he's hitting his hand with a piece of metal. I'm at the door, and he said to me, Lopez, do you know what I use this for? And at that particular moment, I walked real close to him, make sure that the door was closed, and he said, what I do with this is that when I don't like an inmate, I hit him, and then I hit the deuces. The deuces is an alarm that they have. So automatically, you're going to be hit with a pipe, and an alarm is going to bring a whole mess of guards to that particular spot. Mm. I did not know why he was telling me that, mm-hmm. but I made it abundantly clear to him that if he ever would use that pipe against me, it was not going to be an easy life for him. And 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 the same right after right after that, I went to another area and asked for a job. I asked for the job. This was supposed to be the worst guard. The one that I went to was supposed to be the worst guard in the system in the whole prison. But I had worked for him. I had done some paint painting for him, mm-hmm. and I would rather I would rather work for somebody who's sincere and and he, you know knowing who he was rather than somebody who was always showing something different. Can you share a, an experience in prison? Like, what would you say? What would you say is your worst experience in your time in your thirty-five years there? It's, it's something very personal. Uh, it's death of family. Mm. Uh, three three months after I was in in uh, Leavenworth, my father passed away. My my lawyer called the institution at nine o'clock in the morning to notify me that my father had passed away. I was painting, and at one o'clock after one o'clock. The chaplain came and told me, Lopez, we have an emergency call for you. Uh, let's go to the chapel, and and you're, you're going to have access to the phone call. We walk into the chapel. 
he dialed the number. Michael Deutsch was the lawyer who answered. And Michael told me, Oscar, I called the institution at 9 o'clock this morning. Why are you on the phone now? I said, well, they just got me. I said, Michael, wait a minute. I want to talk to this chaplain. I told, I asked the chaplain, why, why had he not notified me at 9 o'clock? And he said, well, I couldn't find you. I said, no, no, no. You have, you have a system here a PA system that whenever you need somebody, you go on the PA and say, Lopez, report, and I'll report. So you cannot tell me that you couldn't find me because you know exactly. If you wanted to find me, you would have found me. Why did you wait until 1 o'clock in the afternoon to go and get me? I want to know. Well, I don't have to give you a reason. Then I you know, got back on the phone with Michael. And, you know, uh, told him, you know, he told me what had happened, you know, and, and that they were trying to mobilize, see if I, I would be allowed to go to Puerto Rico, which I know it was were not going to happen. Oh, okay. So, 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 but, but it, it was my father's death. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, but in this world, in this world, you know, there are things, even in prison, that sometimes we can show a person what we are made out of. Two years after that, there was a theologian, Archie Hargraves, a very, 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 very good person, a friend of mine. He went to visit me. We are in the visiting room, and the the same chaplain comes into the visiting room, and he walks up to Archie, to where we're sitting, and and he, oh, Dr. Dr. Hargraves, how are you? I was one of your students. Archie is looking at my face, and he sees something that is on my face. Archie asked me what had happened, and I told him the story. And you know, we kept on talking, and then the visit was over. Walking back, walking back to the unit where I live, in, in, in Leavenworth is a rotunda. And this chap, this chaplain was standing there, and he said, Mr. Lopez, can I speak with you? And I had told him never, never to talk to me. So I walk up to him, and I told him, I thought that you understood that I, I told you and made it very abundantly clear that I didn't want you talking to me. Why are you talking to me? Oh, because I want to know, how do you know Archie Hargrace? And and I, I, I that was I, his I, priority. Yeah, but the the thing was that the fact that Archie Hargraves had gone to visit me, okay, bothered bothered this chaplain because he was not able to to really find out anything because Archie did not allow him to really get into any conversation. It was he was dispatched fairly fast, and because here's a theologian talking to a Puerto Rican political prisoner. And what is the link between a theologian, well-established religious person, and this Puerto Rican political prisoner? He couldn't find out. Wow. And so going back a little bit, you mentioned your father passing away. Was your mother alive at this time? My mother was alive, but probably, probably Mm. the most painful day in my life 
all my life was the day that I found out that my mother was dead. And it's interesting too. It's a, it's a, it's a story that probably people should hear. I, I was taken to a prison hospital in Missouri for surgery on the 12th of February, 1997. Okay, I arrived on a Wednesday. By the way, I asked for a phone call. They denied me the phone call on Wednesday. I asked for a phone call Thursday, and they denied the phone call on Thursday. Finally, on Friday, at around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they came with a phone and told me, Lopez, you can make a phone call. I called my sister because I was the first person I usually call, my older sister. And when my sister answered the phone, just by her answer, I knew my mother had passed away. Mm. And she said, she said, you know, that our mother had passed away 25 minutes before I called. Yeah. And she had died on her lap. That day, that day, that particular day was probably, and it was probably the most painful, the most, the most difficult day that I have ever lived. I had never, for you know, 15, 16 years, I had never allowed a jailer to look at me from a weak point, uh, from a that I was showing pain. That day, it came out. Wow. And, this, and you're, you're, so you're, this, three months was three months into your sentence. Your father passed away. When when was it that your mother? Uh, the 14th of February, 1997. And did what was what were the last words you? What was the last conversation you got to have with her? The last conversation was probably, uh, probably probably months before then. But my mother had was already a victim of Alzheimer's, and Alzheimer's uh, had made it very difficult for our communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first, you're know, like like my mother. I, I used to when I first got into the first penitentiary. I used to call my mother every night because she asked me to call at a certain time so she'll be praying. And then, you know, it's like 9 o'clock, religiously, I would call my mother. Then I was sent to Marion, and in Marion, I would get two phone calls a month. And the whole thing changed, and the whole thing kept on changing, and the whole thing kept on changing. Uh, the the visits with my mother in Leavenworth were, you know, fairly, fairly, fairly good visits. Both of us would have a good time. When I was sent to Marion, there was no contact visit. So my mother would be on one side, I'll be on the other side with a phone. And it's never the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the, the agreements that my mother and I uh, were able to was that in, in, in Marion, when my mother started coming, you know, she would start crying. So I told her, I said, listen, you know, we cannot, we cannot be showing tears here. Do me a favor, don't cry. And my mother would, would be there waiting for me with that phone in the visiting room. The only time she would cry, and I could see her, it would be when she was walking out of the, out of the visiting room. Mm-hmm. But but it, it was yeah. I mean, she kept her promise not to not to cry while while we're in the visiting room together. Yeah. She was she was uh, 
putting on a strong face. Well, definitely, my mother was yeah. a strong person. Yeah. My mother, my mother was a very strong person. My mother probably, I, I'm, I always said that I'm the man that I am because of my mother. Mm. She was the influence. something with sure, you sure sure please uh i used, i used to yeah have to do things and i had a, a doberman pincher and the only person who could really take care of my dog was my mother so whenever i had to do something nobody had to know but i would call my mother and, and say hey you know can you take care of the dog she'll take care of my dog in 1973 I, I I was in the office. I called my mother at 9 o'clock in the morning. I had just come back from, from a trip. I was just like probably nighttime. Then in the morning I went to the office, and then I called her. And you know, I, I got to the house. You know, it was like 10 minutes from the office to, to the house, and you know, she already had the coffee ready, so we're sitting, and we're talking. And my mother said to me, you know, son, I don't know... In Spanish, of course, because my mother spoke no English. Son, I I have no idea you know, what you do, and I don't want to know, but let me tell you this. Whatever happens, you have to face the consequences. Get ready. Be prepared to face the consequences in this world. Mm. And I, I, I told her, I said, well, no, I'm not doing anything. No, don't worry about it. And, and she said, no, I'm not worrying about it. I'm just telling you. The, the thing is that is it, this biological thing. Uh, a mother can probably see into a child, into a son, into a daughter, things that you, know, you can anticipate because you know, that's the bi- that biological attachment. And usually, usually parents know more about us than we think that they, that that that, yeah. that they know okay and and um it, it was that experience at that time at that particular moment when she said that i said wow you know what 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 is it what is it yo what what has she seen in me you know and I think that there was, a, you know, some changes that she had noticed, not knowing anything, not not knowing she had no idea of what I was doing, but just the changes. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, and I think that for me it was it was like a sh- like shocking, right? When she said that, I said, "Wow, you know, where is she coming from with this?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it was it was a, it was an all. I'm telling you, it was. Uh, a surprise, but also like like, what is it that that you know, she did see in me, and and how was it that she has come to this point, telling me those words? You were using those words, uh, uh, you know, to to say something to me, to send a message to me. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing was she she said, no matter what happens, I know you're not gonna harm anyone, you're not gonna do anything bad. And I'll always be with you, and, and she was. So she mentioned. So you you were sharing how she said, you know, hey, whatever you do is what you're gonna do, but just be ready that there will be consequences. Um, so when we look at those consequences, we look at those 35 years. It's my understanding that you spent 12 years in solitary confinement. Am I right on that? I, I spent 12 years, four months. 12 years and four months. I, in 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 cells. 
that the you know it's like twenty two hours and forty five minutes in a cell, an hour and fifty minutes outside of the cell. Were there windows inside? Other windows in solitary confinement? Let me let me tell you how okay. those, what they please. have. No, please go for they it. They have panels. You know, they have they have a window. On the outside, there's a metal panel, and the metal panel has little holes. So when you look outside, if you see anything through those little holes, you will never see anything, any object that's complete. Mm. So. Once a week, for two hours, we will be taken out to the yard. The rest of the time, we will be inside the penitentiary. What was the reasoning behind going, being sent to solitary confinement? Uh, uh, I th well, Amnesty International in 1986 or 1987, I recall that well, but Amnesty International said that what was taking place in Marion was a legal crime. And that legal crime, you know, if if anyone uh, finds uh, prisoners who were in Marion for a long time, who face those conditions, there's something. There will always be something, something wrong with that. With that, you know, you'll find that a lot of the prisoners, a lot of the inmates, mm. were be. Uh, with problems, they would be having a lot of them. Uh, so, so you will you will see you know, the the end product of the destructive nature of that environment. You will see one of, one of the things that a lot of people don't know is the color of the eye. Mm -hmm. And 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 some of the some of the the, the the inmates with with that with that particular color, you would you would use it would be probably a very dangerous individual, number one, uh, and and you know a, a, a person who uh, in, in in that environment would take a life in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the we we went there's there's something written about you know, like like conditions in in prison and uh, my my word was espiritisidio you know the, the 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 killing of the spirit yeah and and uh, it, it was it was intentional very well it's it, it's it's almost to dehumanize the person completely right. I, th I think that once once uh, a, a person uh, goes through the experience and doesn't know how to deal with it and many many prisoners do know do not know how to shake themselves out of that they you can see it you can you can you can you can take a a, a, a a walk into another penitentiary once those prisoners are transferred from one penitentiary to another and you can see the difference between that inmate there he will walk into that prison and definitely definitely if anyone uh, steps on his uh, on his and and uh, most likely the person is going to lose his life that's how dangerous that that human being becomes Before we wrap up for the week, I want to thank Oscar Lopez for coming on the show. 
I will have a bit more to share from our conversation on next week's episode with you all, so stay tuned for episode number three. I also want to say thanks to all our listeners who shared their feedback on our pilot episode. That was pretty cool to see. A couple people that I, I want to give a, a brief shout out to on Twitter, at Es La Maestra tweeted, just listen to the pilot episode of At Basel Podcast, and I loved it! Two exclamation points. I learned some new things about our giant flags and history of Boricuas in Chicago. I can't wait for more! Three exclamation points. That's a whole lot of excitement, people, and we love feeling that from our audience. Uh, another person, Lourdes, on our website, baselmedia.org, commented on our pilot episode and said... Great job, Joshua. Keep it coming. Look forward to hearing your podcast on a regular basis. We love hearing from you, our listeners, so keep those good vibes coming. Connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, send us a compliment, or even share a recipe for the perfect hibarito, and I am still waiting for that, we would love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. 